0: chapter 4 verses 13 to 18. I didn't bring a handout because it's only six verses so I figured you can find those on your own. First thing I want to thank Tom for uh, substituting for me these last few weeks while we were away due to my mom's passing and I also appreciate the cards and emails and comments you've all given. It's a little personal reflection here. When we look at this verse and these verses, if you have it open, I want you to read along with me, and then I'll give a little thought here before we dive in. Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command in the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God And the dead in Christ will rise first, then those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now the last time I was here speaking to you, it was um, March 17th, I believe, and my mom passed away on March 19th. This passage was to have been the next thing I taught on. And instead, I heard these words read at my mom's gravesite. Surreal. To have something that I had begun the preliminary discussion and study, and then to realize the the application was very personal. And I think that's really the way the Word works, you know? How often in our lives we have gone through something or some circumstance comes along and then that next Sunday, the pastor's sermon, it was like it was written for you. How does that happen? Well, it's the divine work of God in our lives through this living Word. It's really quite extraordinary. So let's just dive in. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Well, brothers is a, uh, the word Adelphi, which, uh, you know, like the city of brotherly love, it does mean the Christians. And he's doing this to contrast with later in the verse with the others. So he's speaking to those in the church. Now, one of the things about the letters of Paul, particularly this one, is it's evident that Paul is answering a question that has been brought back to him from Timothy from the church in Thessalonica. But we don't know what the question is. All we have is the answer. So this entire passage, <clears throat> because it's kind of out of context, if you look at the previous verses, it's all about living a good life and be you know, loving your brothers. And the next thing you know, he's talking about, well, what about those who died? why is he suddenly talking about that it seems like a non sequitur there was no there's no transitional sentence there's no well here's the question that you guys asked me he just simply answers it because at the beginning of the verse it says but we do not want you to be uninformed well that suggests that they are uninformed <laughs> you know i'm trying to help you guys out here you need to have some knowledge because there's uh, some misunderstanding or maybe some lack of clarity on issues regarding those who have died. Now, in this neat little book called The Future of Everything, a brand new book that just came out, The Essential Truths About the End Times, um, he, he writes something here, a guy named uh, William Beckestein. And I did not know this. The words death, dead, and die occur more often than life, alive, and live in the Bible. Over a thousand times, death, dead, and die occur in the Bible. So there is more discussion about the end than there is about the present. In, if you want to use a comparison with, with wording. In Deuteronomy 32, 29, God laments over his people's lack of thought on ultimate things. Quote, Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. Moses understood and asked God to teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Psalm 90, verse 12. We have a modern reluctance to think about, to talk about, or even write about death. We just don't do that in polite company. It's morbid. It's a downer. It's maudlin. And because of that, death catches us by surprise. If you think back in older days, death was common and it happened much earlier in life. And because we didn't uh, travel as far, we lived in small communities, we saw and felt it more often And it was not a surprise. And there was really not a fear of it, per se. I think, in our culture, it's an unhealthy fear. The fact that we don't talk about it freely. I mean, my dad was in wills and estates. So we talked about estate planning at dinner. Mm -hmm. In some families some conversations you don't even talk about it it's just not brought up and so when death occurs the family's not prepared they have not put their affairs in order appropriately and so suddenly all sorts of chaos happens Um, those of you have ever dealt with estates that you had to be the executor or have watched it in your family it can be rather chaotic that was one thing that my dad took care of. You know, he passed six and a half years ago. Um, and so when mom passed, my brothers were all, it's all, okay, here's everything. You know, We had it all prepared. It was just not simple, but it was prepared. Ernest Becker wrote a book many years ago called The Denial of Death. Anybody heard of it? All right. I was... I had to read it when I was a um, theology student at Fuller Seminary Extension here in the city. So I was a senior at Grand Canyon University and I wanted to take more classes so I was an idiot and took seminary level classes while taking a full load my senior year in college. (sighs) Anyway, (laughs) the outside reading was 10,000 pages just for the one class including the book Denial of Death. The book Denial of Death is not written by a Christian. He is a atheist, agnostic, social, social, uh, uh, not socialist. Um, that's my word. Is hmm? Sociology. Sociology, psychology, philosophy professor. One of the few that integrated all sorts of different disciplines. And he, he proposed the idea that our culture's fear of death created a denial of death and is the source of all of our psychological disturbances. Mm. And also the source of all our motivation for life. Mm. So here's a man who said, you know, if we remove the fear of death, a lot of our weirdness goes away. So years later, um, after he'd written the book, the book won a Pulitzer Prize, by the way, two months after he died. So he never got to enjoy the uh, accolades. But while he was on his deathbed, another psychologist by the name of Sam Keen sat down next to him and said, Okay, Ernest, you wrote the book Denial of Death. Are you afraid? I mean, it's coming, buddy, you know, you don't have much long, long here, and it's this interview in Psychology Today, and Ernest Becker said, I have absolutely no fear of death, but of course, this is all there is, and I'm good with that. To grieve as others who have no hope. He was having an intellectual um, understanding that made him feel okay. But if you think about it, our pursuit of unending distractions in our culture, in movies, television, Facebook feeds, all social media, drugs, sex, alcohol, they are all designed to keep us from facing our mortality. It just. Punts it down the street so we don't have to face it. We as believers should not be afraid because Christ conquered death for us all throughout the scripture. It was over and over and over again, this idea that Christ died so that we might live and have life eternal. Now you know we can. There are some fun, you know, funny stories that come out of this. I found one that I will read to you. An 85-year-old couple—they're both 85 years old. They've been married for almost 60 years, and unfortunately, they died in a car crash. So, but they had been in good health the last 10 years of their life, mainly due to her interest in health food and exercise. And when they reached the pearly gates, St. Peter took them on a tour. Took them to their mansion, which was decked out with a beautiful kitchen and a master bath and a jacuzzi, and they oohed and they awed. And the old man asked Peter, "Well, how much is this going to cost?" Peter says, "Well, it's free. It's heaven, huh?" Well, next they went back and surveyed the golf championship golf course that the home was backed up against. And they would have golfing privileges every day. And each week the course changed to a new one that reflected all the great golf courses of the entire earth. And the old man said, so what are the green fees? And Peter said, this is heaven. You play for free. Well, then they went to the clubhouse and saw a lavish buffet lunch with all the cuisines of the world laid out. Well, how much does it cost to eat here, says the old man. And Peter says, you don't understand this yet. This is heaven. It's free. And so it's some exasperation, the old man says, well, then where's the low-fat and low-cholesterol table? <laughs> and Peter lectured, that's the best part. You can eat as much as you like, whatever you like, and you'll never get fat, you'll never get sick. This is heaven. The old man threw down his hat, stomped on it, and got really angry. And they, both Peter and the, his wife were sort of going, calm down, calm down. And the old man turned on his wife said, it's your fault. If it weren't for your blasted bran muffins, I could have been here 10 years ago. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there was nothing biblical about any of that. But it's really funny. <laughs> Yeah, it's in Hezekiah it's an Old Testament proverb he says I don't want you to be uninformed understand God has a plan for the end of life We, again we live in a culture that kind of pushes it off and doesn't talk about it this ancient culture the idea of death was it could be tomorrow you know a, a sickness could roll through a town and the f- people would get the flu and half of them would die you know you had you know, this thing about these this new outbreak of measles and you've got and in the past you think of scarlet fever and all these diseases that would just suddenly ravage a community. So there was always this question of is this all there is? It's always been there. We don't want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. Now that one phrase about those who are asleep has created a bit of controversy in many circles and it's found in other places in the New Testament obviously because the uh, description of those who have died as being asleep was a common thing to say in fact you can even go back to uh, the Old Testament um, let me find it here in Daniel chapter 12 almost there there we go Daniel chapter 12 and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever so even Daniel is talking about those who have fallen asleep in the dust The Iliad, Homer's Iliad, has a soldier who has fallen in battle and slept the sleep of bronze. It's obviously, they're not moving. Their eyes are closed, most likely. They are asleep. They look like they are asleep. Even John chapter 11, Lazarus is described as having fallen asleep. But there is a doctrine that has grown out in some areas. Um, you have the Jehovah Witnesses and the seventh-day Adventists teach soul sleep. And this is the idea that when you die, your soul sleeps, doesn't go anywhere, kind of stays in the grave until the second coming, when you will be raised up at the second coming. John Calvin's very first book ever that he wrote was called Psychopanitia, or Soul Sleep. And he spent the entire book dispensing with this theory that apparently was prevalent in the church in France at the time. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 8 that to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. This idea that there is some odd space, some in between uh, uh, between death and life, there's some gray place where people kind of are hovering, waiting, is not scriptural. So be careful if you hear that, or if you have come across it. You know, you're not going to suddenly be struck by lightning, but just be careful because it really. Creates some inconsistencies in how the Bible speaks about the end of life. Did you know the word cemetery? Actually, it comes from a Greek word, comaterion, called the sleeping place. It's also another word for dormitory. <laughs> kind of like college. Over <laughs> there, where sleep of the dead. You know. Uh, <laughs> But the word cemetery is actually it's a sleeping place. So the idea of that people have fallen asleep isn't trying to make a doctrinal statement here in this verse which is what has happened. They, and this this goes, just cuts to the idea that so many times these minutia or these uh, odd ideas come out of the most obscure places in scripture. And this is one of them. But the verse continues. So he says, We don't need to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have died or who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Now, Paul is not saying you cannot grieve. That isn't what it says. But that you should not grieve as those who have no hope. Death is a profound emotional shock to those who are still here. Everyone in this room has experienced it in some form or fashion. Family members, relatives, friends, teachers. It's everywhere and it's always this, I will never see them again. Our grief is normal and natural and should be embraced. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to feel sadness. Because we love them. As I wrote here, when you love deeply, you hurt deeply. That's just the way it is. It's also something that will never go away. Too often, someone will say, just get beyond it. That's not helpful know when significant grief or even a it can be the loss of a pet I don't want to you know just dis, it here but that loss of something creates grief in the soul and it's okay just don't live there yeah to make a comment I was speaking with a patient uh, at work, I work at the Cancer Center, and that uh, patient was a widow like myself. And we had a little short discussion about people told her to get over it. She says, you don't get over it, you get through it. And that's something for everybody here to know. Don't ever tell somebody or think they should get over it. You never get over it because of what Steve just said. It's, I even wrote here, it's like a chronic ache. And it can come at the strangest times where that ache suddenly turns into pain. Any of you who have chronic illness or a chronic hip or a knee, you're fine until suddenly you're not. You can be going along and, whoa, what just happened? And it just flares up suddenly and you can't figure out what happened, why it happened. It just did. It happened to me yesterday. I was in Walgreens, needing to get some, uh, you know, some over the counter medication that I have to take regularly, and I was walking down the uh, card aisle, and it was, uh, suddenly I turned, oh my yeah, the Mother's Day cards, and right there, BAM! I wept in the aisle of the Walgreens, because I couldn't buy my mother a card. That was not expected. It just happened, Do you know, that's okay, that's okay. Didn't feel very good, it was kind of embarrassing, but you know, you pull yourself together, hope nobody saw anything and you kind of move on. Uh, it happened when I was at Mount Hermon two weeks ago speaking in the last uh, speaker on a Monday night. He's a comedian, oh my goodness, we were belly laughing for 40 minutes. It was one of the most hilarious things, and you can't describe it to anybody. If you ever sat through a speaker who is both a pastor but a comedian, you just have to be there. But at the very end, he made a comment, because this guy has written 20 books or whatever, all humor books. And, uh, You know, he was talking to his mom one day, and she was very elderly, and he says, oh, mom, you know, I'm the writer in the family. You know, you have so many great stories. You should write a book. And she goes, I did. And his name is Philip. That's his name. And then she named every one of her children. She goes, I've written five books. And I wept in the pew in the back. Because as parents, we write the names on the titles of the books of our children. And they are each inside their own covers. And each has their own story that we pour into, but they also pour into. And guess what? The author and finisher of that book is God. That is really powerful. God is there in everything we do. This ache doesn't go away. Uh, one piece I have—it's written in the back of my Bible. I don't even know where I heard it. Must have been a sermon here somewhere. Um, the the trajectory of grief is tears, talk, and time. And that's the trajectory: tears, talk, and time. Paul does not forbid grief, goodness, Jesus wept in John 11.35 when he heard the news of his, um, when he realized Lazarus had died. But he was even more deeply moved a few uh, moments later in John 11.38. We read John 11.35, Jesus wept, okay, fine. helpful as I was in John and not Acts then Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb and that's when he was standing right before the, the door and that's when he called Lazarus forth but he was already emotionally moved it wasn't just one one slight moment in time but he says that you should not grieve as others who have no hope. Oh goodness sake my friends how does the people in this world live through grief when there's nothing left and this is it I don't understand it I have no concept I mean you see the images in you know in the media of People wailing and uh, you know this overwhelming grief you read about uh, the odd stories you know you talk to a funeral director which I briefly did and he says oh yeah I've seen it all at these graveside ceremonies I talked I read a little thing of a pastor who was giving a uh, the you know the Christian part of the graveside ceremony when all they were doing was pouring beer and wine over the casket And all just mourning and, you know, smoking reefers and throwing them into the grave. And there there, there was just, there was emptiness was so prevalent. He said, I was sitting here going, I'm trying to bring God into this conversation, but they weren't interested. But they had nothing, nothing but their grief, nothing more. It's actually rather evident if you go along some of the uh, the Appian Way in Italy, along Rome, and there's these various uh, gravestones and markers along the way. One of them says, literally it re- reads, written in Latin, "There is no hope for those who are al- there is hope for those who are alive, but for those who have died, there is none." Well, thank you for that roadside message. The hopelessness is forever encased in stone by pagans. There's another that says, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. Hopeless. On, the, um, on a tomb in Thessalonica is found this phrase, after death there is no revival, after the grave no meeting of those who have loved each other on earth. And that's the message they were giving to everyone else. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and that's it. Do it now. Go your own way. Contrast that with the catacombs in Rome, where... Chiseled in stone are psalms of hope right above the cache of skulls and bones. This contrast of no hope versus hope, the ancients actually made it pretty obvious. Upon getting the news of Lazarus's death, John eleven twenty-five. Jesus said, he's talking to Martha, who had come to tell him the news. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is as if he's standing right here, right now, and asking us that question. Do you believe this? If you're not sure, then start examining your heart right now. But if you are sure, the whole formula changes. We can grieve as those who have hope in contrast to those who do not. There's a new book coming out next week, so I wasn't able to get a copy before I came. But it's a new one by an author named Catherine Butler called "Between Life and Death: A Gospel-Centered Guide to End-of-Life Medical Care." So this is a woman, a physician who deals with end-of-life issues, and you know know, we talk about the you know hospice care, the do-not-resuscitate, you know all those kinds of things, but also the medical ethic questions of pulling the plug, all those kind of discussions. Are a part of our current day, and she writes, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, and then I'll quote her. It says one of the things in medical ethics, in particular, there's the idea of autonomy. This is my choice. This is mine. It's the last thing I can do. She goes, I would make a statement that when we talk about autonomy as self-determination, from a Christian worldview, it should not be an end of itself. We are given free will, and we are made unique in the image of God to glorify Him. For any decision we make at the end of life, autonomy is something we should consider, but it should not be for what I want for me. Isn't that interesting? It should be a projection of what should I do and how should I use my life and my free will to glorify God. Completely flips the equation. We do this for me. No. What are we doing that will glorify God in this world to those who are watching? And she goes, the second thing and the most important thing is the hope that we have in Christ where death is not the end. It's a tremendous source of hope that, we really, that should really guide every decision we make. It should be through the lens of the gospel because what the Bible teaches us through the cross is that nothing, not a ventilator, not dialysis, and not CPR can frighten us or wrench us from God's love. Wow. That is really powerful. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. No fear. None. So, came across this story from Chuck Swindoll. I'll just read it in its entirety. It's from his commentary on First Thessalonians. He said, when I was a kid growing up in Houston, our family lived across the street from a man and woman who married later in life, well beyond the childbearing years. The two of them enjoyed a honeymoon that lasted well into retirement. Mrs. Roberts, Mr. Roberts was a wonderful doting husband who loved his wife deeply and she found great joy in the man of her dreams. And then suddenly a heart attack took him from her and plunged plunged her into a bottomless grief. In the weeks that followed the funeral, my mother watched Mrs. Roberts leave the house every day to visit his graveside. Mrs. Roberts spent hours there talking, crying, seeking solace, grasping for some kind of connection with her departed mate. But instead, her despair deepened. You see, our neighbor had no personal relationship with Christ and no firm basis for hope beyond the grave. As she looked back on her delightful years with her husband, years that ended so suddenly and so absurdly, she had no answers, and her futile graveside attempts to reconnect just further confused her and deepened her hopelessness. I will never forget the day my mother said to me, Charles, I'm going across the street to talk to Mrs. Roberts. I want you to pray that her heart will be open to what I have to say within a few minutes, Mom was across the street with a batch of warm cookies and a pitcher of lemonade. And that afternoon, Mrs. Roberts embraced the truth. Because Jesus rose from the dead, death does not have the final victory. That day a miracle happened. Mrs. Roberts, that day my mother returned with an empty pitcher and a full heart. Mrs. Roberts embraced the good news that Jesus Christ conquered death but she didn't stop her trips to the cemetery. She said, I'm going back, and I'm gonna to talk to the people that who, are, who are there. In her many graveside vis- visits, she had noticed other people we- weeping and talking to cold stones, trying in vain to contact the dead in hopes of recapturing a relationship they once enjoyed. She understood that despair, but now she held a truth they desperately needed to hear. And Mrs. Roberts became a cemetery evangelist. She was the first and last I ever knew. With her little New Testament and a few well-chosen words, this transformed lady comforted mourners as they wept, then offered them the hope that had given her a new perspective on life and death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is an amazing story. And it's so true. The contrast of someone with no hope, who is desperate to reconnect, connecting on this side to someone who has that hope and life will be fulfilled in that regard. So that's one verse of the passage today. It's an important thing to discuss. But the passage goes on. This is one paragraph in the text. So, It's all part of the same context. So you know, I pull it apart a little bit for good reasons. But we need to also look at the rest of it. And the rest of it is where most people pull it apart. They don't focus on verse 13. They focus on verses 14 to 18. And you can see why. For since we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again... Whoops, stop, wait, hold it. For since we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again... Guess what? Paul is laying the foundation for everything that comes after this. If you don't believe that Jesus died and rose again, the rest of this conversation is meaningless. It's foolish. This is the foundation of it all. If you want to know, well, what is the gospel? Well, uh, Jesus died and he rose again. Oh, oh, you want explanation? <laughs> I mean, that's all you have to say. It's that simple. There are a billion words that have been written about this, but it's that simple. And Paul boiled it down to its essence. Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The power of the resurrection Pastor Jim's sermon last week on 1 Corinthians 15. We heard it. Well articulated. And if you didn't come away from that particular presentation with an understanding of what the resurrection means, then you weren't listening. Very clear. Because if the resurrection did not happen, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, then faith is meaningless. So the resurrection is the key to it all. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So there's a little controversy in this verse. You don't really see it unless you're reading it really slowly and carefully. Paul says, We declare to you by a word from the Lord. What word from the Lord? He's making a declaration, a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Well, what's he referring to? There isn't a verse that says that anywhere in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, nowhere. Well, imagine how much ink has been spilled by the commentators about this. Question. I mean, there's a. I could go into a very long discussion, and I'm not going to. Um, what does he mean? I mean, is he talking about his own words? Paul talking about his own words as being from the from from the Lord. Well, yes and no. But why would he, you know, pull these out in specific when there is no connection here? Um, I'll just read you the conclusion by John Stott. He says, however. There is no saying recorded in the four Gospels, which Paul can be shown to be quoting here. So, either he was making an allusion to one, like Matthew 24, 31, which says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. That is a general statement But that's the words of Jesus. But this isn't a quote here. So he might have been making an allusion to something that was well understood in the body of literature uh, about Jesus. Or he was quoting an otherwise unknown word of Jesus. An unwritten saying, saying. Like the one he did in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. In Acts 20, verse 35... Paul, or Luke, is writing, and he's quoting Paul, who's speaking to the Ephesian elders. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than receive. Except the phrase, it is more blessed to give and receive, is not found in the four Gospels. So Paul is quoting Jesus from somewhere, we don't have that material. We just have to remember they didn't have the internet back then. Google didn't index every word ever spoken or written in the history of mankind. A lot of things that were written or even oral tradition was passed on and lost. So when he says declaring to you by the word of the Lord we just simply have to accept it as what saying, is saying. that this is from the Lord we just don't know exactly what where it came from. But again, the idea is the question that the Thessalonian church people must have asked is, but what about, you say that that Jesus is coming back, but what about those who died? I mean, did they miss out? And he's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. They will be caught up first in the coming. So then we get to verse 16 and 17. Verse 16 and 17 is the, probably one of the more famous and more uh, picked apart verses in the Bible for anyone who studies end times literature. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will always be with the Lord. Note four times the word will. The Lord himself will descend. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive will be caught up together with him and they will and we will always be with the lord he didn't use the word might the lord himself might descend from heaven and the dead in christ might rise first this is a declarative theological unequivocal statement of the coming of christ it is going to happen Period. We just don't know when, but it will happen. And Paul is making a very strong statement. He's coming back in person, and it's going to be dramatic and overwhelming. The King James has the uh, that he will descend with a shout, which is where we get some songs and some other things in the common uh, parlance of our discussion of this event. But the actual word is a cry of command. And then you have the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet. Boy, I've seen material that pulls those three apart. Command, voice, and trumpet as three very distinct and meaningful acts in the coming of Christ. I'm going, really? It just means it's a lot of stuff going on. He's not trying to say, well, this is going to come first and then we're gonna have the music and then we'll have the special number from the trumpet player no he's not setting it up like that and the dead in Christ will rise first so we have first we have the return and now we have the resurrection it's answers the explicit question as I mentioned earlier about what is going to happen to those who have died they care about their loved ones they care about those who have preceded them in death and if they died in Christ, they will be risen with Christ. All right. Oh, by the way, is the word rapture in this verse anywhere? No. Yeah. No, but I can see why some people are thinking about the spiritual sleep in here. Exactly. Then you're like, well, aren't they already with the Lord? Right. So then why is it say that it's one of those wonderful um, conundrums of Scripture. Because, you know, where is the soul? Is it the body? In my attempt to do some research for this passage, I wasted 20 minutes listening to a very well known pastor talking about what exactly our risen bodies will look like. And I'm sitting here listening, going, really? We're spending twenty minutes in this incredible passage and you're talking about our old body versus the new body and how it's gonna be all look like this and it's kind of going, how do you know, buddy? You know, you're you're just filling the airwaves. Maybe you ran out of stuff to study and you just want to talk about this because but my guess is that people in his congregation were asking him the question. And he was trying to answer it. And this is where a lot of the, uh, the problems come. Because someone might say to you, there is no rapture. You cannot find the word rapture in the New Testament. And you can't. It's not here. But in the word caught up, it's a Latin word. So when they translated the Greek, harpazo, which means to be taken suddenly, like in Acts 39 when Philip was caught up suddenly after talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. It's the same word. It's harpazo. He was caught up suddenly. When they translated it into Latin, the Latin word is rapere, which means to seize, and we get the word rapture from that word. So someone says rapture isn't in the New Testament. It's just a made-up doctrine by... um, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye you know, for the left-behind books. Schofield. Schofield was the one who actually originated it uh, with a Schofield Study Bible with the old dispensational theology and all that stuff. Then you get the issue of when is the rapture going to happen. it going to happen before the tribulation, during the tribulation, or after the tribulation. I have a book here brand new, called I Am Not Afraid of the Antichrist. And it's an entire book. We're talking 230 pages for a post-rapture, or post-tribulation rapture position. It's very interesting. It's actually rather uh, well-argued. And then another commentary, which I didn't bring with me, um, the back of the book was a 14-page very small print appendix for a pre tribulation rapture now I don't know if this is the case here at Camelback I don't know the uh, the in- internal machinations but I do know that some churches when they go to seek a new pastor am I correct these kinds of issues you have to say what you believe and if you believe the wrong thing, they won't hire you. Like we know. We don't know if it's pre, mid, post, uh, pro, whatever. We have no idea. And that's just on the rapture. Then you go into the millennial period. Is it, you know, is the coming of Jesus, pre millennial, post millennial? When is all this? And we've seen the charts and the graphs and. Alster Baggett is a great great preacher and he talks about, he says, the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things there, you've heard it It listen a lot well on this passage he brought it up again he goes, I be, I have been given so many books on the end times and you know I poke them on my shelf and I go, oh, that looks very smart and wise and every once in a while I'll pull one off and I'm going I don't know what they're talking about I don't care and it reminded him of a poem, and it's actually one that my dad partially did, because whenever I was, we were going somewhere and I wanted to know where we were going, my dad would always say, we're going to London to visit the queen. <laughs> <laughs> and I hated that. <laughs> I mean, I use it on our girls, and they just after a while say, okay, we'll just wait till we get there. But it's from a little tiny kid's poem. Little mouse, little mouse, where have you been? Been, I, or, I went to London to visit the Queen. Little mouse, little mouse, what did you there? I chased another mouse under the chair. It's what? I'm sorry? It's pussycat, Pussycat, where have you been? But that's what he did it from. He had a little uh-huh. mouse. I'm just quoting Alster Beck. <laughs> <laughs> you can take it up with him. <laughs> <laughs> My guess is in Scotland, it's a mouse. And in England, it's a pussycat. So anyway, the whole point is, the king is coming, and we're playing around under the chair with other little mice or other little pussycats, whatever. And it's silly when we get all wrapped up in it. It's important to study, yes. But when we make it a litmus test for someone's Christianity, that's wrong. It's just wrong, it's just an opinion. We really don't know. I mean, my, my, my dad was pretty firm on the dispensational side of things. He had the charts and the graphs and all of that, and I found later in life, I just couldn't even have a conversation with him about it. Because I would want to discuss it, and he just, boom, he just, he, this was his belief. You know, after a while, I guess that's okay. You no. Know. When you're trying to do yes. the gospel, and you're mixing in yes. things that are not necessarily biblical. Set biblical beliefs, right. and saying you need to also swallow this along with the gospel. This is you have to pair it, and that I think yeah. is dangerous because if it's if you're adding to the gospel, it's just it's not. And the wise. thing is, is that in a conversation, these are questions that come up. I mean, it's the chronology. It's when's it going to happen? How is it going to happen? This is interesting and cool stuff. And I was looking at this verse a little more carefully um, in my study, and it dawned on me that in verse 17, we we have focused on the phrase of "we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds," but you know, the actual core meaning of the verse is the next phrase: to meet the Lord. That's the whole point. We focus on the action, and not on the purpose. The purpose of this verse is to say, Jesus is coming again, and you know what? The dead in Christ will rise, and you will be caught up with him. We get to meet him in the air. Because his last verse is, Therefore encourage one another with these words. He didn't say, Discuss amongst yourselves. He could have, but he's not trying to set a painting with charts and graphs. I don't know how many I came across just in studying for these verses. I was going, oh, I kept thinking, should I make a handout for the class? No, no, you know, we could, and we might, when we get into some of the other passages that deal with this, we talked a bit about this when we were studying Matthew 24, but we had the same problem. We could probably go through the room and have some really fascinating discussions. But we love each other. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not going to burn each other's houses down because we disagree on when the rapture is going to occur. And the problem for me is I'm not smart enough to argue with people like this and this other commentator who have diametrically opposed opinions. I read this book and went, wow, okay, it's post-tribulation rapture. Okay, that's what I believe. Then I read the guy yesterday who was pretty and I went, oh, wow, yeah, okay, that makes sense. That's what I believe. I'm not smart enough. Yeah. I think you've said this before. but It was mostly the millennial. Remember what Dr. Putnam always said about his stance? Oh, his stance was pro-millennial. He was all for it. I'm all for it. Whatever, you know. We've heard the pan millennial that all pan out in the end, but he took it one step further. I'm all for it. You are, Um, yeah. uh, The y'all, yes. He had that great Southern Kentucky accent. But the the key is, we will meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. This whole passage starts with death. And we read those verses at funerals, at grave sites. Because we can grieve. We lose someone, it hurts. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Why? Because of the rest of the passage. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can stand in full confidence in the hope of of the coming of the Lord of Christ and to meet Him in the air and spend the rest of eternity with the Lord. He He is risen. He is risen indeed. Therefore, we have hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this passage. Not easy to talk about difficult things. And yet, in your divine economy, you never just leave us there. You always bring us back to you in every part of Scripture. The hardest thing in life is to deal with loss of any kind, of any sort, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend we all have those stories and yet we can have faith and can believe